All right, back to John chapter 5. You will need your Bibles out and open in front of you. Verses 24 through 29, page 890 in the Pew Bible. I almost just gave up this week and decided that we're just going to take the rest of John one verse a week. We probably should do that. But since there are 668 verses left, that would take us over 13 years to finish. Though that would not be time poorly spent, we still would have failed to exhaust the riches of this life-giving book. I'm trying to make the case that John chapter 5 especially deserves great attention. Notice how our passage this week starts in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, amen, amen, in the Greek. Remember, Jesus is saying this is really important. Pay attention. Listen to what I'm about to say. But also notice how Jesus says this exact same phrase three times in this short section. 19, we saw it last week. Truly, truly, I say to you, I'm God. I'm the Son of God. Church, there's nothing more important for you than to know the identity of the God who is life. Today we have 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes has life. So there is nothing more important than your response to Christ's revelation of the God who is life. But he's not done yet. Verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, those who hear the voice of the Son will live. So truly, truly, three times, all of them about life. Life is on the line. And yes, as we read this book, we're going to see that Jesus loves this phrase, truly, truly. He'll use it throughout the book uh, for purpose of emphasis and attention. But nowhere else does he use it so repeatedly in such a short space, except for John 3. John 3 also has three truly, truly's. Verse 3, verse 5, verse 11. Also, all about life, unless one is born again. Right? That's life. So truly, truly, I say to you, this is truly important. We all want life. It's what we're all living for. It's what we're all dying to gain. Life is what it's all about. And life is what Jesus is all about, and thus what John is all about, and thus what these verses are all about. But if this whole thing is about life and how to find life in Christ, the obvious implication is that apart from Christ, there is only death. Right, so the solution of life implies the problem of death. And so it just seems, church, right now that we just can't get away from death, which is good. It seems that it just keeps coming up, which is good, because death is coming. COVID keeps confronting us with death. Lydia just confronted us with death. We just lost someone that many of us love dearly. We just gathered together uh, three nights ago because of death can't get away from it, which is good because you can't get away from it. You do everything that you can to not think about it, but it's there. Your death is looming. It is coming. So we're going to keep talking about it. Christians used to understand that it was in large part the role of the church and the pastor not to make you feel good about yourself, but to help you prepare to die. That's what the church was for. Everyone else can ultimately only be about delaying death and making life as comfortable as possible until death comes. But if Christ's claims here are true, then it is only the church, the pillar and the buttress of this truth, entrusted with the gospel that is life, that can ultimately save life. And so instead of despairing or panicking in these times that we find ourselves in, we should see this as great opportunity. 
It's a great opportunity for us to be the church. It's a great opportunity for us to point to Christ, the giver of life and the solution to death. And we Christians need this reminder too. The, just the general panic and universal anxiety surrounding us this last year and a half has revealed, among other things, that few of us have been properly prepared to face the reality of our mortality. I read this week a letter from C.S. Lewis that I'd never read before, and in it he says, It is astonishing that sometimes we believe that we believe what really in our heart we do not believe. Right? So it's very easy for us to believe that we believe what really we do not actually believe. Could that be true when it comes to death? Right? Do we really live as if the claims of Christ here are true? What are those claims? Remember last week, we're looking at the confrontational claims of Christ. John 5 is so important because it contains some of Christ's clearest and most comprehensive revelation of who he is. And back in verses 19 and 20, we saw two of his biggest claims. Christ is the giver of life, and Christ is the judge at death. Giver of life, judge at death. Jesus is claiming to be both the one who brings people into existence and the one who determines the nature of their eternal existence. And if that is true, that makes Jesus eternally important. He is the giver of life and he is the judge at death. Therefore, you must deal with him. You must do business with this Christ if these claims are true. He's sovereign over life and he's sovereign over death. And it is those two claims that Christ continues to assert in verses 24 through 29. And so let's just try and keep things nice and simple this morning. Two main points, and I especially want us to see how these two points are connected and logically related. First, point number one, we'll see that Jesus gives eternal life through his powerful word. But then second... Following from that, we will also then see that Jesus gives eternal judgment through his powerful word. Where Jesus gives life, Jesus executes judgment. That's it. That's all we want to do this morning. Do we believe this? I've repeat, been repeating this year the mission statement that I stole from uh, the English pastor Rico Tice, who just says, people without Christ go to hell. And we just need to remember this fundamental truth. People without Christ go to hell. If we truly believe that, we would live differently. Well, that's what this passage is ultimately about. The Christ who is both life and judge. Death has come for Lydia. And she faced it with great confidence and joy. Because she knew, loved, and most importantly, was loved and had been given life by this Christ. Your death is coming. Do you know and love? And are you loved by? And have you been given life by this Christ? Christ. Hebrews 9:27. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Let's consider what Christ claims about that judgment. Uh, follow along as I read. This is a short passage, John chapter 5. We're picking up in verse 24 and reading to verse 29. Pay attention, because this is what God wants to say to you this morning. Truly, truly. I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. If you would bow with me, let's begin first by going to the Lord in a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, your grace is demonstrated to us right now, right here, in the fact that we have this word in front of us. This word that you have spoken, this word that you have inspired and preserved, this word that in your particular providence, as we learned this morning, you have specifically ordained would be the word that this specific people would hear at this specific time. Father, we thank you that you are always working and that you are always good. So we ask that you would accomplish that work now through the preaching of your word. I cannot accomplish that work, but your spirit working through your word can. So, Father, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I ask that you would help the preaching and teaching of the Word. As we have just sung, we pray that you would show us Christ, a Christ who is revealed through this Word. Father, help us to take seriously the claims that he makes here. Help us to live soberly in light of the reality that death is coming and that Christ is our only hope. So, Father, accomplish your good ends um, in this time, we ask and we pray. In the name of this Jesus, amen. Point number one, Jesus gives eternal life through his powerful word. First, some big picture overview. Uh, My job is not just to teach you what, but also to be working on teaching you how. Look look at the text. We're about to talk about the importance of the word. Jesus says, Matthew 4, 4, that man lives. Life is what we're talking about. A man lives not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Right, again, another basic Christian principle. Your relationship with Christ will advance no further than your relationship with the Scriptures. Your relationship with Christ will advance no further than your relationship with the Scriptures. Because it's the Scriptures that are the means through which Christ mediates His presence and His relationship. And what you think about Christ is in large part revealed by what you think about and do with His Word. And so I can never overemphasize to you how important and how precious the word is. Jesus says it is our food. Food is how we live. The word is how we live. Have you eaten anything this week? But the point right now is that if this word is so important, then we need to know how to read it and understand it so that we can be fed by it and live by it. Uh, Look at it. Let's, let me walk you briefly through some of what I do. Uh, for me, Tuesday is text day. Not texting. You know that I hate texting. Uh, we are increasingly not even sending text, just cute little images and pictures. Uh, we should call it stupid cliparting or something, right? Grown men should not use emojis. That's just my own personal opinion. Um, so, no, it's not scripture, but just come on. Anyways, for me, Tuesday is my day with the text. I try not to schedule meetings, I try to limit phone calls, I try to make Tuesday all about the text. And when I sit down with a text, first thing, Tuesday morning, I am first doing two primary things. I am praying and I am reading. 
And then I'm praying, and then I'm reading, and then I'm praying, and then I'm reading, and then I'm doing those things together. Praying, then reading, reading, then praying, praying while reading. That's the first and most important principle of interpretation. Read much more than you think that you need to read. I often have no idea what a text is really saying in the first five or ten times that I have read that text. Keep reading. And then pray more than you think that you need to pray. Do you go in prayer to God before you go to the Word of God? So it has to start there. Next, while continually praying and continually reading, I start by looking for key words and repeated words. After a couple of read-throughs, I get out a pad of paper or a notebook, and then I just start writing down in a column just one word, just simple observations. I see this word, and I see this word, and I'm just starting to make a notation of the words that I see. So, for example, when you look at our text, starting in verse 24, I would write down and notice, oh, I see hears, word, believes, life, judgment, death, life. So already I'm starting to get a decent idea of what this is about. Keep reading. Verse 25, you see dead, and you see hear, and voice, and son, and hear, and live. 26, I notice father and son and life and life. Verse 27, I see authority and I see judgment again. Verse 28, I see voice again. And in verse 29, I see resurrection life, resurrection judgment. So just in reading the text and writing words down, I've seen word once and voice twice. I've seen the word hear four times and the word believe with that. I've seen life and live six times. I've seen judgment three times. Now I've got a pretty good start. Now I can start working out how all these words work together. Right? And you can do this exact same thing if you would just slow down and give the text the time it deserves. It's worth the time because it is in this word that we find life. That's the case that I'm trying to make. It's in the word that you will find the life that you are looking for. And so... Turning to the text, Jesus grabs us from the start. Truly, truly, I say to you. And then we see that here twice in that first uh, two verses. And so Jesus is saying, hey, hear what I am about to say to you about hearing. And he says it twice. So it's, it's hear, hear. Right? We still say that, right? Hear, hear. Right? I'm an Anglophile, you know. I think I could have actually been a good preacher had I been blessed with an English accent. But I think that English government and parliamentary proceedings are far more interesting than ours. And we can trace all the way back to the 1600s a phrase that we still use today. Right? British Parliament's notorious for its lively debate. And hundreds of years ago, to add support to something that was being said or to seek to draw accent or attention to it, they would cry out and say, hear him, hear him. Well, Brits are lazy, just like the rest of us. And by the 18th century, that had eventually been shortened simply to hear, hear. As they say, hear, hear, to something that they agreed with, something that they thought was important. Hear this, heed this, this is good, this is important. That's what Jesus is doing here. He is highlighting what is to follow, which is what? Look at it. Here, he starts off, pay attention, whoever hears my word, and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And so first take note that Jesus is further elaborating and expounding upon what he's already said in verse 21. Jesus has already said this in 21. The Son gives life to whom he will. And so the Son is the great giver of life. 
We'll look at the nature of that life in a moment, the what, but I first want to look at the means of that life, the, the how. We all want to live, so how do we? How does anyone get this life that Christ is talking about? Well, start with the obvious. If there is a how, if there is some means to getting and gaining this life, that must first then mean that we don't have it. We don't have the life. And not having life is death. This is the basic human condition. Ephesians 2.1, for you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Little Greek, do you know what the Greek word there means uh, in the Greek? Do you know what it means? It means dead. I messed that up. Necros just means dead. That's it. It just means dead. Literally dead. Do you know the first use of that word in the New Testament? It's in Matthew 8, 28, when Jesus says, this is a fascinating phrase. Jesus says in Matthew 8, 28, leave the dead to bury their own dead. See what he's doing there? Leave the dead to bury their own dead. There must be two different types of dead there that he's talking about. Physically dead people do not and cannot bury anything. But Jesus calls the ones doing the burying of the physically dead, the dead themselves. So he must then mean that though physically alive, they are spiritually dead. So he says, leave the spiritually dead to bury their own physically dead. Right? Scripture speaks of death in three ways. It speaks of physical death, it speaks of spiritual death, and it speaks of eternal death. We best understand physical death, sort of. We think of it as the, the cessation of those physical and biological functions that sustain life. But biblically, it's better to think of physical death as the point at which the spiritual soul departs the physical body. We are made in the image of God, and we are made a duality. We are made a union of body and soul. Physical death is the disunion of that union. Spiritual death is our loss of righteousness and relationship with the God who is life due to our sin. Remember, nice and simple. Sin separates. Um, all have sinned. So all are born physically alive, but spiritually dead. Separated from the God who is life. Then there's eternal death. Eternal death is intimately connected to the previous two. At the moment of physical death, the separation of body and soul, the spiritual state of that soul, as we'll see in a moment, is now fixed and final. And so eternal death is the state of spiritual death going on into eternity, separated forever from the love, goodness, and blessing of God. In other words, eternal death is it's, it's hell. And as we just heard, people without Christ, who is life, go to hell. So everyone, except for Christ, of course, everyone who has ever been born was born physically alive, but spiritually dead. And will remain spiritually dead eternally unless something is done. Unless that spiritual life is granted or given. So look at 21 again. Here's the main means. Here's the how that happens. First and foremost, for the spiritually dead to live, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, must give them life. This is what God does. This is Jesus again claiming to be God. We saw back in chapter 1, verse 4, that in him was life. In verse 3, right before that, we saw that all things were made through him. Jesus is the creator. 
And take note, see the connection between Genesis 1 and our first point here. Our first point is that Jesus gives life through his powerful word. What is the very first thing that we are ever told about God and see God doing? Giving life through his powerful word. That's Genesis 1. That's what God does. And here we see Jesus doing it himself. He is the author of life. He is its source, its origin, its giver. And so this is important to get. This is why we are so obnoxious and insistent on emphasizing to you the importance of the doctrines of grace. There is nothing more important for you to understand than God's good and glorious grace. One of the basic things that we're trying to help you get, because it's so freeing and life-giving, is that verse 21 comes before verse 24. Obvious, right? No. Or the truths of verse 21 uh, come before the truths of verse 24. Or as we've been putting it, as it's generally put, this isn't original with us, regeneration precedes faith. Regeneration precedes faith. You hear that in there? Regeneration. Right? The word generate comes from the Latin word for to create, to beget, to birth. In other words, to give life. Regeneration is the giving of new life. We were dead, Ephesians 2.1. We need life. Oh, verse 21. The Son gives life. His work precedes our response. I had always understood it in the reverse. Uh, my whole young life. And it made me miserable. I had always understood it. If you would just believe, God would see your belief. Hey, good job. You did it. You believed. And then in response, he would give me the life. And that always crippled me. Why? Okay, because of this insecurity, this doubt. Well, did I do it right? Was I sincere enough? Did I say the magic prayer correctly? Maybe not, so I better say it again, right? So I've said that sinner's prayer, ended up like dozens and dozens and, and hundreds of times. Maybe this time I'll get it exactly correct and it'll see and it'll work. Um, I believe that what I did and how I did it determined what God did. And it drove me mad. But God. But praise God for his grace and the doctrines of grace. I'd gotten it all backwards. It doesn't work. Because I was dead, and dead doesn't do. The good news is that God's grace does not wait for us to act. God's grace gives and grants spiritual life to the spiritually dead. This is Ephesians 2. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, but God made you alive together with Christ. He did it. He acted first. And so we are talking here about what is often referred to as effectual calling. I wanted to word our first point, Jesus gives life through his effectual word, but powerful is, is simpler. Uh, shorter catechism, question 31, what is effectual calling? Effectual calling is the work of God's spirit, whereby convincing us uh, of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds and the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he persuades us, enables us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. That's how the Son gives life. He does it through the Spirit. We're going to look at this in great detail in chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 63 says, It is the Spirit who gives life. So the Son gives life, the Spirit gives life. They're working together here. It is the Spirit who unites us to Christ, who is life, thus giving us His life, 
which then opens our eyes to see our sin and misery, opens our eyes to see the blessing and the beauty of Jesus, and then persuades and enables us to embrace and believe in Jesus. That's regeneration. I've used the illustration before in the sense of, uh, um, of union with Christ, but it kind of, I think it applies. One of my favorite things as a father, uh, Henry got me thinking about being a father and all those things in Sunday school this morning. My girls are better than his boys. Um, uh, so I win. Um, kidding. One of my favorite things as a father is kids just sleep so deeply. And sometimes they fall asleep in random weird places, right? And so then you have to transport them from one place to another. And I love that. It's one of the great privileges of fatherhood. So I love picking up my kids in my arms and holding them. They are completely dead to the world, right? They're just laying there. They can do nothing. I pick them up, right? I bring them up from the ground to the air. I am holding them. I am supporting them. I have acted. I have raised them up. But then what's the best part? What do they do in their sleep? They respond to what I have done. And there's like the turn and the hug and the grab and the holding on tight and the embracing. That's kind of a decent picture of what's going on here. We're dead, literally dead. He picks us up and supports us. He gives us new life. And then we respond to that and we in turn and we embrace in gladness and response to his initiative. That's regeneration. The son gives life. He picks us up. That's verse 21, which precedes the faith. Verse 24. Look at it. Here's how it looks on our end. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. So hearing and believing equals living. And this will again, uh, get, we'll get to this later in John chapter uh, 10. Who is it that hears his word? John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders who do not believe. Why don't the religious leaders believe? Verse 26, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. They don't go around picking up other people's kids that are asleep, right? I pick up my kids um, that are asleep. They're mine, and they respond. It's not the hearing that makes one a sheep. It's the being a sheep by the grace of God that makes one hear. And this is really good news, church. Why? Because of that universal human condition that we started with. Because of that spiritual deadness. Therefore, our only hope is the initiating, life-giving grace of God. This is why the first point is of first importance and why Jesus and John repeat themselves so much. Life, 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 life. I came that they may have life. We're not going to get away from this theme in this book. This is everywhere and everything because there is everywhere only death. And thus there's only life to be found in Christ. He brings and gives the one thing that we need. And it is the hearing and the believing that are the outward means, the the how of God moving sinners from death to life. But don't miss that there's a specific object of that hearing and believing. He says, he directs our attention to it. Whoever hears my the word it's the word it's the word through which the work is accomplished and what a word it must be then what a living and active word what an effectual powerful word look at verse 25 we'll see that verse 25 looks similar to verse 28 but it's not it's different it's talking about two different things note the now in verse 25 jesus says Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now 
hear when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now, he says, this is happening now. Jesus is not talking about something to come. He's about to, not right now. Jesus is talking about the first resurrection. He's talking about what we just talked about. We were spiritually dead. That means we need spiritual life. Jesus speaks. And the spiritually dead, those who are his, hear that effectual voice, hear that powerful word, and live. Church, this is what has already happened to every single one of us who are in Christ. He calls, he gives, we hear, we live. What a claim he is making. One commentator argues that this is the strongest, biggest claim that Jesus makes in the whole gospel. That's a big claim to defend, but this is a huge claim that Jesus is making. This is an unequivocal claim that he is God. He is claiming sovereign, reality-creating, life-giving power. What a word this must be then. It makes me think of Lazarus in chapter 11. We are given that sign specifically to help us understand salvation and God's initiating grace in it. What is Lazarus doing in the story of John chapter 11? Nothing. He's dead. He's he's rotting in the tomb, period. And and that whole scene is just such a beautiful picture of Edwards, his, his admirable conjunctions of diverse excellencies in Christ. Remember, the beauty of Christ is how we see all of these things coming together in this one person. And in that chapter, we see Christ's tender love and compassion. But then we see it combined with his transcendent power and sovereign authority. Lazarus is dead. Christ calls. Lazarus lives. It's the perfect picture of salvation. Christ initiates his word, his voice, gives the life, and then Lazarus responds, and he walks out of the tomb. It is Jesus and Jesus alone who gives eternal life through his powerful word. And this is why there can be no one else and no other way. This is why Jesus is and cannot be one among many. He will not allow that. No other religious leader claims this right and this power. No one else claims then uh, and then does what Christ claims and does here. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is who I am. This is how powerful I am. This is how everything depends upon and revolves around me. I speak, the dead live. That's an amazing claim. Church, I hope you've experienced this, right? I was so wretchedly dead and wallowing in my trespasses and sins. I was not pursuing the Lord. I was pursuing the good life and pleasure and the thing that kids do when they go off to college. But he was pursuing me the whole time. I was not crying out to him, but he was calling out to me. And oh, eventually that effectual call, that word, it works. And when applied by the Holy Spirit, it gave life where there was nothing but death. Listen, it changed everything. And this is one of those things that I think we often miss and minimize. So we're specifically trying to mark and maximize it. Grace works. Grace changes. Grace transforms. I quoted last Thursday a famous old pastor who wrote, in 50 years of being a pastor, that's a long time. I didn't even make it to 10. In 50 years of being a pastor, hoping to make it to 10. 50 years of being a pastor, he says, my most difficult assignment 
continues to be the task of developing a sense about the people I serve of the soul-transforming implications of grace. A comprehensive, foundational reorientation from living anxiously by my wits and power to living effortlessly in the world of God's active presence. You see, as your pastors, we want you to see and experience this soul-transforming implication of grace. It is a comprehensive, foundational reorientation. What more dramatic change could there be than one from death to life? You can tell the difference between Lazarus, right, when he moves from death to life. He's just laying there and he smells bad and he's rotting. He's up, he's walking, he's talking, he's whole. There's a dramatic difference. That's what God's grace does. We just really don't understand what it means to be a Christian. It means to be spiritually and vitally alive. It means we are united to God himself. It means, the famous old book title, it means to have the very life of God within the soul of man. The very life that spun galaxies into existence. The very life that can create life out of death. That can create everything out of nothing. The very life that we just saw this morning that sustains everything by the word of his power. We have that. That is what is given to us when Christ himself is given to us. Because Christ is God who is When the son says it is the son who gives life, he is saying it is the son who gives himself because he is life. Remember, that's what God's grace is. It is his graciously giving to us of himself. So church, what we're trying to help you see is how limited our understanding and perspective of the Christian life sometimes is. We're trying to help you see how Christ is not something you add to your life. And hopes that he can kind of come alongside and make your life a little bit better and make you feel better and and give you what you want. No, we're trying to help you see that he himself is life. A Christian is one who has been consumed by Christ and thus increasingly lives a life consumed with Christ. Convinced that he is where we find life and love. And church, it's so, so good. It's better than anything else. I was raised in the church. I've been in, I was born at seminary, literally. I was born at seminary when my dad was at seminary. Dad was a pastor my whole life. So I've been in this now for 37 years. I wasn't saved by the grace of God until 21 or 22. But in 16 years of knowing the Lord and 37 years of at least being in the church, I think maybe by the grace of God, I'm just kind of starting to get a taste of what this is um, by his grace. And I'm seeing, through lots of pain and suffering and my own misery and sin, I'm seeing how good he is and how prone I am to seek these things and other things, to seek this life and other things still. And yet he keeps calling me back and he keeps showing and he keeps saying, look, look, here's who I am. Here's who I am. And he's so good, church. And we want you to know him and delight in him and enjoy him. You keep trying to find life in other things and those other things keep letting you down. That's because of this. That's because uh, it's only found here in Christ. I'm slowly working through Anna Karenina right now. I mentioned that to be, be impressed. I'm trying to impress you. Uh, I was convicted that I can't claim to really be a reader if I haven't yet worked through the great works of Russian literature, but they're tough. 
Um, try starting with Tolstoy before Dostoevsky. Uh, Tolstoy is easier. Um, and in his Anna Karenina, uh, there's an adulterous affair at the center of the story. Um, I haven't gotten to the end yet, so no spoilers if you've read it. Um, but about 400 pages in, the man, Count Vronsky, who has been pursuing another man's wife, Anna, the title character, he finally succeeds. He breaks up the marriage, uh, there's the divorce, she leaves, and he gains the girl. For 400 pages, he has wanted one thing, and he was sure that gaining that one thing would satisfy him, and he finally gains that one thing. Some of you are convinced that some relationship will make you happy. So did Vronsky. What was the result? This penetrating and um, Russianly insightful paragraph. Vronsky, meanwhile, despite the full realization of what he had desired for so long, was not fully happy. He soon felt that the realization of his desire had given him only a grain of the mountain of happiness that he had expected. It showed him the eternal error that people make in imagining that happiness is the realization of desires. Oh, that's so good. The eternal error that all of us make. We think that happiness results from getting what we want. We think that happiness results from positive circumstances as we so define them. It doesn't work. And we know that. And yet we continually pursue the realization, the achievement, or accomplish of those desires, but those desires never deliver. Why? Because of our first point. Because Christ is life, and Christ gives life. Thus you will find it nowhere else, and in nothing else but in Him. But... What if you insist and persist in your pursuit of life apart from Christ? Oh, point number two. Jesus gives eternal judgment through his powerful word. I'm punting verse 26 for now. I'm just going to kind of pass over a very important verse. Uh, we talked a few weeks ago about the aseity of God. Uh, that's a fancy word that just means from uh, himself. God is God is eternal. God is independent. God is self-existent. He derives his life from nothing else. Right? We depend on God for everything. He depends on nothing for anything. He has life in himself. That's the aseity of God. And in some mysterious way we see in this verse, the Father eternally grants that same life to his Son. Uh, this is referred to as the eternal generation of the Son. Maybe when we get to chapter 8 of, on Christ in the 1689, I'll try to tackle this. But for now... It's enough to affirm that just as the Father has life in himself, so the Son, who is God, also has life in himself. And, verse 27, here's our second point. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. I've said recently a number of times how important the word authority is this is what defines modernity, the cultural moment that we find ourselves in. It's the, the, the rejection of any authority outside of the self. Everything that's going on out there, and the sexual revolution and everything, is rooted in this idea that there is no authority outside of the self that can tell us who we are or, or what to do. Remember, authority just answers the simple question, says who? That authority is the right or the power to say so. And I almost got super sidetracked here yesterday afternoon, but I spared you and didn't really have time to look into it. Figure it out for me and come tell me about it. Remember, verse 26 just explained God's aseity 
Now in verse 27, we're looking at authority. And authority is rooted in aseity. And I've explained before how the Greek word for authority is one of my favorite Greek words, exousia, which is literally this compound word of out of or from attached to the verb to be. So it's out of being, out of self. So authority is the power or the right that comes out of existence or being. Think of like an author of a book. He creates something out of himself. And since he creates it, he has authority over it. That's exousia, right or power rooted in identity, uh, out of being or self. But remember, aseity means from self, from himself. It's the same idea. The authority of God is rooted in the aseity of God, and there's potential for some really good stuff there. Go figure it out for me. But Christ, as God and King, has all authority. He has the ultimate right of say so, of says who. God. He's, he's the king. But here we're focusing on his authority specifically to judge. And an important question here then is what's the connection between point one and point two? What or is there a connection between Jesus as giver of life and then judge at death? Like why in these claims that contain this glorious self-revelation of Christ does Christ himself jump straight from life giver to judgment giver? Well, think about it. The second logically follows from the first. Jesus has just revealed himself in all his goodness and glory and beauty. He is life itself. He is joy and pleasure and peace. And he came to bring that life and to give that life to others. And our, and our response? No different than the response of the Jewish leaders. Verse 16, they were persecuting Jesus. Verse 18, they were seeking all the more to kill Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Chapter 3, verse 19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. You see, our natural human response to God's revelation is rejection. And again, don't miss that it's a revelation of his goodness and his beauty and his offer of life. That's what we're rejecting in our sin, which is a rejection of him. And so Jesus as judge logically follows from Jesus as life and light entering into and encountering death and darkness. The rejection of life, the, the one who is life, is the ultimate offense. And it is the height of irrationality and stupidity. I've got a lot of sin and S's things. Sin separates. Sin is stupid. Right? That's the other one. Right? Sin makes us stupid. And it, the worst thing that ever is and ever can be done is to reject the God who is life, who comes and says, hey, I want to give you life and eternal blessing and joy and pleasure. And we say, no thanks. That's what we've all done in our sin, which rejects him, is a separation from him. Our sin is a rejection of life, which logically then is a reception of death. That's why Jesus moves from life-giving to judgment, executing. And we've rejected the life. Here's the result. Look at verses 28 and 29. Remember that verse 25 had a now in it. These verses have no now. This is still to come. This is something different. 28. Do not marvel at this. 
for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Again, just consider what a claim. <laughs> Normal people don't say stuff like this. Right? You, you don't say stuff like this. This is why you know, C.S. Lewis famously put it, like someone who makes such a claim can't just be a nice moral teacher. He can't just be someone that we like, mildly appreciate. Like, yeah, I, I kind of like him. That's kind of cool. No, look at what he's saying. Right? He's, he must either be God himself, the Lord himself, or he's a liar or some just insane lunatic or a demon, Lewis says. So Jesus is confronting you with his claims and demanding a response of reception or rejection. Know me, love me, worship me, or rage against me, rebel against me, reject me. There, there, there's no middle ground. He does not allow for that. And so he claims that there is a time coming when all that it, the physically dead, will hear his voice and come out and come to physical life. And don't forget, these are truth claims that Jesus is making. I think sometimes we just think like, oh, those are nice ideas. We're kind of like, oh, these are things that people think and say to make themselves feel better. No, Jesus is saying that this is something that is actually going to happen in real space and time sometime soon. Jesus will call and everyone who has ever lived, ever, will be raised to life. Again, it's a remarkable claim. And it must be a pretty remarkable person and a pretty powerful word that could do such a thing. This Christ, again, more than meets the eye. He can speak, and everyone who has ever died comes back to life. Power. But this is one of the main and most important facts that most people entirely ignore in their day-to-day -day lives. And we're pretty good at this, too. The fact that life does not end at death. We should never forget that fact. Life does not end at death. Nor does automatically everyone RIP, rest in peace, as if everyone just... Uh, every death automatically results in a nice, pleasant eternity, no matter how uh, someone lived. No. Jesus says, when he returns, right, this is what happens. I, I remember I said, at the return of Jesus, three things happen. Uh, R's. Return, resurrection, retribution or reward, that's the judgment, and then the recreation. All that happens at the return of Christ. I won't get into the timing. I don't think there's a seven-year gap or a thousand-year gap. No, he returns, those things happen. But right now, we're focused on the return. There's the resurrection for all, which then is followed directly by judgment for all. Hebrews 9, 27. Again, it is appointed for man to die once. It is appointed for you, man and woman, to die once. And after that comes judgment. We should live our whole lives with that reality in mind. Judgment is a four-letter word. These days, we're not supposed to judge, and yet we live in increasingly the most judgmental culture ever. Uh, judgment is unavoidable. It's a part of life. If there is good and evil, right and wrong, there must be judgment to discriminate between the two. Right? The Greek word for judgment, uh, krino, is where we get our word discriminate. The basic idea of the word was to, to separate. And then it developed into the idea of separating or selecting one thing over another, thus deciding or judging. This is the reality that we want to deny, but deep down all know to be true. As I said last week, this is why we all bear guilt and carry shame. This is why we all strive so hard to be good, or at least to be perceived and seen as good by other people. This explains uh, social media use um, in large part. We know there's a standard. We know we should be good. We know that we're not. 
Listen, and we know that we will answer for that. The scripture is clear. Judgment follows death. But look at the basis of that judgment in verse 29. It's not exactly what we would expect. Those who have done good, resurrection of life. Those who have done evil, resurrection of judgment. Jesus all of a sudden here sneaking in and teaching uh, salvation by works? Of course not. We've got to read it in context. Read done good in connection back with chapter 3 verse 21 where he says whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. See that? Whatever is done, whatever good is and can only be carried out in God. It is and can only be done by the grace of God. In chapter 6, 29, Jesus will say, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. But what we're seeing here in the case that we've been making is that that belief does something. It is by grace, through faith, but as we're seeing, this grace changes us and transforms us. It works. You could tell the difference in Lazarus. You could tell the difference in someone who knows the Lord and is alive. And that's all James is saying in James chapter 2. I will show you my faith by my works. Those saved and changed by the grace of God will do good. Those who are not saved and changed by the grace of God can only do evil. And God's right and righteous judgment will reflect that. And so note that our destinies are not decided on that day to come, this future day of judgment. If we had perfect judges in our law courts... Right, perfect, omniscient judges, the innocence of guilt, uh, the innocence or guilt of the defendant wouldn't be determined on their day in court. Right? Their innocence or guilt was determined on the day they either did or did not commit the crime. It's the same with the great judgment day to come. Our eternal destinies are decided now. In this short, difficult, distracted life. Now, not the life to come. If that's true, that makes this life now and how you respond to the one who is life now eternally important. You will stand before him completely open and completely known. Pastor Mike read it for us earlier in Revelation 20. The books were opened and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. They were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Have you ever really considered this reality? You should. It would do you good. Have you ever been caught? This is embarrassing. Brazenly and sinfully saying what you think about someone, right? Thinking that you're secret and safe and they're not around only for that person to hear and find out. Or you send the email to that person that you meant to be about that person, right? It's an awful feeling because it's a very clear revelation of how awful you really are. Well, consider the final judgment. Consider the books. I've said before that if you knew me truly and fully, if you knew everything I had ever done, every word I have ever said, every thought I have ever entertained, then you would never spend your time listening to me, ever. And if I knew knew the same for you, I would never waste my time talking to you, right? And I'm not talking just about our past, pre-Christ. I'm talking about our present. I'm talking about the depths of darkness and depravity that remain in all of us. What if we could hear and know all of each other's words behind closed doors and the secret thoughts of our hearts? What if I could know your secret thoughts of your hearts right now? No thanks. (laughs) But this is what the judgment will be like. Imagine you have a tape recorder around your neck that's not just recording every word you utter, 
but every thought that you consider. And then it all gets played back. And how would you feel? How would you fare? And remember, this is all happening before perfect righteousness, perfect purity, perfect goodness. This is all happening as you stand before the one who is the perfect standard that you are being judged against. How is that going to go for you? And do you know how it's going to go for me? Perfectly. 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 Because of Christ. And if you know me, that's insane. But because he took my place, because he took my punishment, because he died my death so that I could be forgiven and lived, yeah, and live, I mean, that's the gospel. Remember, Jesus in my place. Because of that, one of the greatest verses in Scripture, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because of point number one. Because by the grace of God, I heard his word and believed in him who gives life. And that means that on that day, I will stand before Christ, with Christ, and in Christ. I will stand before Christ, judged by Christ, in a sense, as Christ. Because I am in him. I am clothed in him. His perfect record of righteousness is counted as if it was mine. And therefore, for me... And for any of you who are in Christ, the resurrection and the judgment is all and ultimately one of life and reward because of Jesus and because of Christ. And so the thing that should be the most fearful thing becomes for me the most blissful thing. Death is regularly referred to in old writing as the king of terrors. But there should be one thing that terrifies us infinitely more than physical death. And it is standing on our own as sinners before the perfectly righteous and gloriously holy God. Church, the presence of God is a terrible thing. We talk very casually about the presence of God sometimes. Uh, we can barely begin to imagine what it's really like. Consider something like Isaiah 6. Consider what happens in Scripture when sinners come into the presence of God. He is a flaming fire. Now, the sun is so brilliantly bright and devastatingly hot that to begin to even draw near to it is to be utterly consumed by it. And it's no different with the presence of God. Unless, unless we are clothed by God himself. Unless we are covered with Christ, who is God himself. That totally transforms our experience of the presence of God. Both heaven and hell, listen to this, both heaven and hell are what they are because of the presence of God. Both of them are what they are because of the presence of God. The happiness of heaven is the presence of God. The horror of hell is the presence of God. Hell is the total absence of not God. It's the total absence of the goodness and blessing and mercy of God. And then the terrible presence of the justice and wrath of God. See, Satan does not reign in hell. Right? Satan suffers in hell. God reigns everywhere. He is present everywhere. Present either to bless or to curse for eternity. And that's why Christ and his claims here are so important. He is the giver of life, but there is no crime more heinous than the rejection of the giver of life. Thus, he is also the judge at death, and he will be one or the other for you. And so we plead with you because we love you uh, to believe in him and know him as the first. And we encourage you that knowing him changes your life and it changes your death. 
Death becomes nothing more for you than the entrance into eternal life. And so two quick takeaways, and we're done. Two quick applications. Number one, I'll just skip the explanation, but just hey, number one, live in light of death. We have got to regain and return to the practice of living our life in light of our death, of living the present in light of reality. Um, Spurgeon says, to be prepared to die is to be prepared to live. So live in light of death. Never forget, your death is coming. And second, die in light of life. I think we all experience this. What a blessing to have the privilege of watching Lydia die well to the glory of God, trusting in her Savior completely, suffering miserably physically, and yet peaceful and glad spiritually. Because, Spurgeon again, the one who practices dying every day will not be afraid of the reality when it comes. And so we face that inevitable death in light of this eternal life that is found in Christ. He is life, church, and he changes everything. He makes all things new. And so he says twice, truly, truly, I say to you, hear this word. Believe, love him, and live for he who died for you. Let's close uh, with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Help us to treasure it. Help us to count your word as our most uh, precious possession. Father, help us to treat it as if it was our most precious possession. Drive us to your word this week, Lord. Drive us to the word in uh, which we encounter uh, the Christ who is life. And we pray that you would confront us with him in all his glory and all his beauty. You would give us a great love and affection for him as we see what we deserved and as we see what we get and are graced with in him. Father, I pray that that would make us glad and joyful. I pray that we would truly worship you and treasure you above all things and live lives that reflect uh, what it is that we confess that we believe. Um, we, we need your help. Lord, we fall so short of what you have called us to. But we thank you that you are gracious and that you are patient and that you are kind. So, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ this morning that they would find great joy in you this week. Father, life is hard. Circumstances are often bad. Many of us return, leave these doors, and go to hard and difficult and struggling things. Father, help us to go into those things knowing that you are there and knowing that you are good and knowing that you are... Um, orchestrating and working all of those things for our ultimate good, which is an eternity of joy, and of gladness, and of pleasure in and with you. Um, so, Father, help us to live our present in light of our future. Um, Father, for those who do not know you, we ask that your spirit would do his work through his word. We have seen that it is you who are the one who gives life, so we ask that you would do that. Grant them life. Move them from death to life. Grant them uh, the eyes to see so that they can repent and believe. Father, draw sinners to the Savior uh, who is life. We ask and we pray all this only in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.